we all get lonely sometimes. Some of us can be lonely while surrounded by people, and others of us might be lonely because we have no one else. And I'm not going to say either one is worse, but it's interesting to ask yourself, which one would you rather be? Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Sheila Patel. Dr. Patel was a psychiatrist for over 25 years, working with diverse ages and populations along the east coast of the U.S. For about 15 years, she was one of only two child psychiatrists in her area, able to watch and observe a generation of children becoming adults. She's since retired and written various books, one of which focuses on why we, the human race, are growing lonelier and choosing to not engage in relationships until much later, if at all. And as with most things in life these days, it's killing us. Lest you think that loneliness is just a you problem, check out this statistic our expert shares. Almost 30% of people all over the United States, all over Canada, all over Europe, that are having trouble connecting and meeting somebody. That's one in every three people. Unrelated, remember this is a featured podcast on the Podbean streaming service. Check that out if you're looking for a wonderful listening experience for all of your favorite shows. They're helping me so much to find so many new listeners who will hopefully also tell other people about the show. Let's address our isolation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sheila Patel. Thank you, Colton, for having me here. Yes, of course. I'm so excited to have you. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience? I am a retired psychiatrist. I worked with children and adults for over 25 years and retired early for a variety of reasons. One, I... um was kind of burnt out with the business aspect of doing medical practice and also working with children and adults with mental health issues can be draining. And there comes a time in life when you have to say, are you putting your best foot forward? For me, my bar is pretty high because when you're dealing with mental health issues and you're trying to get them to a good place. You want to be able to continue to do your best. And if you're not, then you need to step back. I had made enough investments and, you know, from a very young age, I've learned to save and I didn't have kids. So I didn't have college funds and I didn't have weddings to plan. And so I decided to hang up my shingle. And being an Indian, I believe in destiny. And six months after I retired, my father had a major heart attack. And so I was coming down from Georgia, where I practiced for 25 years, uh, to Florida all the time to take care of them. Both my parents were aging. After a while, I decided that I would just uh, move down to Florida to be closer to them, to take care of them. And in fact, it's my father's birthday today. He passed away 10 years ago. 
but I still remember him on his birthdays and reminisce about all the things that he taught me. And once uh, the pandemic hit, I was really concerned about a lot of the mental health issues. And in my first book, I wrote about what to anticipate what might be happening. I'm really kind of surrounded by brainiacs here in Cape Canaveral. And they're all space engineers and astronauts and people working with clean energy. And they all, in talking to them, really encouraged me to start writing some books on mental health because I felt like I had the credentials, I had the knowledge. Maybe people might listen to a psychiatrist rather than just a layperson on social media going on about this or that or people trying to just read the latest fad that's happening. And so I once I sat down to write, it was crazy because yesterday I was doing a radio show on creativity and one of the things she asked was, how, how do you get the ideas to write? And I said, it's just so strange that when I first started writing, I thought I would just write about a few things and then it just kept flowing and flowing. And my first book got so big that I had to divide it up into two books. And so I have the book one, which is mostly dealing with relationships. And in 2018, the Me Too movement was really big. And I really wanted people to understand how the Me Too movement may impact not only the women, but again, we're going to be talking about loneliness and we're going to be talking about why men stay single. And there are a lot of issues that came out of the Me Too movement that may be affecting these relationships and problems with dating and meeting people. And then the pandemic hit. And so I had to put something down about the pandemic and all the mental health issues that may arise from that. And I hate to say it, but a lot of things I predicted did come true. And that's what's happening in the country. And then January 6th happened. And I was more concerned about anger and division and how that would affect the American population. And so that's what that third U.S. fracture is about. So my three books are Us Unhinged, which is relationships, and then the U.S. Unhinged, which is dealing with the social problems in America and how to move forward, and then the U.S. Fractured. But um, I think now I'm done with writing. I am excited, and I have a lot of trepidation because I have not done a lot of speaking, but I would love to be the voice of reason across the United States, which is a very high ambition. But if you don't aim high, you don't get there. And I want to be able to teach people or give them at least a roadmap to what they can do to make more peace, not only within themselves, but with their families, their relationships, and then the community at large. So that's where I'm in life right now, Colton. Certainly. And that's a good goal to set, you know, to say like, I know I'm setting the bar very high, but if I don't set it there, I don't know if I'll ever strive to be there. That's right. <laughs> so what kind of inspired, I mean, I know you said like the book got so large that it was end up divided into the first two. What got you started on the first one specifically with relationships? It was mostly about the Me Too movement because everybody was jumping on the bandwagon saying Me Too. And I said, okay. I was a female psychiatrist in Valdosta, Georgia, which is a small town just above the border of Florida and Georgia. 
And I had a huge draw area who came to see me because I was the only female psychiatrist for about 15 years. And I was about one of the only two child psychiatrists and the only one really in private practice. And so I had a very large drawing of females wanting to come see me. So I was seeing a lot of females with sexual abuse issues. I was seeing a lot of children with sexual abuse issues. I was seeing a lot of men who were struggling. And it's it's funny, I call them kind of rednecks, <laughs> but the men still wanted to see a female psychiatrist rather than a male. And so I really literally in three months of starting practice, I was at 100% capacity. I, I you know, I, I had as many patients as I wanted to, and that's how it was for 20, 25 years of my practice that I stayed very busy. And I really felt like the information that was getting out there and what the media portrays at times, because they focus on all the negative things or the wow effect or the, you know, things that kind of draw their audience in. I wanted to put out information to the people and talk from my experience what the different problems could arise and what issues they needed to get over and how to get over them. And so really the Me Too movement is the one that really impelled me into starting to write. And from there, because of the background with child psychiatry, and I had dealt with parenting issues on most of my career life that I really felt like I could really write about children and what's good as far as parenting and what's not. And I'm going to be doing a podcast in the near future about uh, raising confident children, because to me, that is so paramount in this day and age to get the next generation doing what they need to do and how the parents can either help or hinder them in getting there. Are there a couple of key things usually tell people when you're like, look, I know your kid's you know, reaching adulthood, you're ready to kind of shuttle them off to either into college or into life on their own. Are there like some key things that you usually tell people? Well, one of the things that has really been hindering some of these kids getting out there into college life is the parents feeling like they have to take care of all their obstacles. They don't teach them the life skills. And in fact, one of the things I was just thinking about is is our the schools are not doing a really good job about teaching these kids day-to-day life skills. And so, you know, the parents need to even simple things like budgeting, grocery shopping, um, starting to save, even taking basic care of the car. I think the fathers need to teach both the girls and boys about changing tires, about, you know, how to, if the battery runs flat, what they need to do. And it's it's incredible. I know from my own nieces and nephews that half the times they're always calling their parents, you know, what do I do now? And these are the things that when we were growing up, by the time you were 18 and 19, you were out of the house and you had to really deal with a lot of those things because we didn't have cell phones. We couldn't just call parents. Uh, so one is understanding about life skills. Secondly, there's 14% of college students who don't even graduate or they feel so insecure. 
And one of the things that the parents need to teach these kids is that there are going to be obstacles, but they're going to have to learn how to overcome them. The other thing that raising confident kids and knowing that they're going to be successful once they're out of the house is teaching them what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do and help them understand that if they're confident in themselves, that when they see somebody else doing something wrong, that they're going to stop them, that they're going to either intervene or they're going to support the person or in another sense, as far as the problems they're having with teachers and college professors is the la- is the lack of respect. One of the two books that I was researching well, uh, is Raising Wimpy Kids and Molly Coddling of the American Mind. And it, it, it really hit home as far as the problems that these kids are not only creating for themselves. And and where does that come from? That comes from the lack of respect they have for their parents. So one of the things that the parents really need to do is stop making excuses for your kids. Teach the kids to respect adults, and not only in the home, but also outside and in the school situation or whatever. The other big thing that I always advocate with the parents is that not every child is supposed to be going to college. There are so many jobs like plumbers and electricians and welders, and they used to have vocational schools. And I talked to a 23-year-old who I thought was so mature, and the way he put it out was, hey, I'm in a job that I really like. He came to lay some tile down at my mom's house. And he says, you know, I've been doing this uh, tile work for like three or four years. And I love what I do. I got the training when I got out of school. I don't have any student loans to pay. I am really good in my career. And he was only 23 years old. And I think that's what people Parents also need to understand that not every kid needs to go to college, that there are so many careers out there. And through vocational school, they can learn a trade and they can make really good money starting at a young age and be really good at what they're doing at a young age. And, you know, those are just a few things. I know I'm all over the place, but those are a few things that I really advocate to parents that if they want to try and get their children to be successful, because I think that's the job of the parents. Um, you know, I know the teachers and the coaches and everybody else helps out, but I think the main job for the parents is to really help the next generation and the children to be successful in their lives. Does that make sense? Certainly. And I've been talking to a couple of parents who have had, you know, kids that reached college age and they're going off. And one of the interesting things they've been telling me is they're like, my kid's having a hard time socializing in college because now they're, you know, they're living in a dorm and maybe they're around people all the time and they don't know how to interact in that situation. Or, you know, they're, they're kind of going to these sporadic classes all over campus and they don't really know how to make friends, which is funny because we spend so much time socializing for the past 12 years before that. You wouldn't think it would be an issue, but it's suddenly a massive issue in colleges. Right, exactly. Um, When I was uh, thinking about the issue of loneliness, it's funny that it's the 21 to 30-year-olds that are the most lonely. And you would think that these are the kids that really should be out there. They're in teams or they're in sports or... um, But 
the Surgeon Generals, all of them got together. And one of the major issues that they highlighted was the mental health of youth. So these are the youth that are going out into the colleges or leaving home. And so what has been happening at home? One, so much focus has been on, you know, trying to get them to different classes, keeping them occupied all through the day or playing team sports or whatever. And so they, they've not developed the skills of getting out, dating. There's so many kids that don't even learn to drive at, at the age when, you know, 16, 17-year-olds like us were desperate to get our driver's license and get out. Most of us got kicked out of the house at 18. And so you either went off to college and did that. But now these kids are staying more at home. They're more confined. They're used to having their own set of friends. So what happens when they go to college? They have to have different social networks. They have to have, uh, they have to be confident in themselves to either start dating or meeting women, uh, you know, the, either, you know, depending on your sexual orientation, as far as who you're going to be attracted to, who you're going to date. If they've not ha learned how to date and have relationships and have heartbreaks and how to deal with those obstacles, it's going to be a little bit harder when you've already got the challenges of a new life, a new college, making new friends, getting out there. Then during the pandemic, and since there has been such an explosion of social media, one of the things that has really happened is that people think they're connecting. And they're not really connecting because you really don't have that face-to-face -face connection. What you have is a connection to your phone or to your laptop or to your computer. And most people, you know, that that is why, you know, kids get in trouble with bullying or they look at uh, these issues or they, they, they feel slighted or it's much easier to be ugly on the social media than face-to-face. It's much easier to say negative things and think you can get away with because there's not somebody to confront you. It's much easier to, to send a little text message saying, hey, how are you doing? My mom's 89 and I make sure that I, I pick up the phone and call her every day because just to know that I still care about her, I'm thinking about her and we stay connected. We have really kind of lost that. How, how many times do you actually get a card in the mail saying, hey, uh, have a great day, or I'm thinking about you, or happy birthday, or whatever. People, you know, are just so busy texting and sending out short messages. And is that really connecting? I don't think so. And I think that's the generation that you're talking about, the 21 to 30-year-olds, that have just kind of learned over these last 10, 15 years that they think they're connecting, when, when in real life they're not. The thing that really bothers me is when you go into restaurants and you either see couples who are sitting there on their phones and neither of them is talking to each other, they're on their phones. Or the worst is to see a whole family and the kids are all on their phones, the parents are on their phones, nobody's having a conversation. One of the neatest things that I heard recently was a kid talking about when the parents ask them questions and their general answer is, how was your day? Okay. And so the parent goes off and does their own thing and the kid goes off and does their own thing. 
And then the kid comes back and says, you know, I really want my parents to ask me, no, really, how was your day? You know, did you talk to somebody? Did you, you know, what was this class? Or did you learn something in, you know, what the teachers were teaching or whatever? And the kid says, you know, I want my mom and dad not only to look through the keyhole, but open the door and come in and talk to me. And I thought that was so poignant. Then that's what's missing is how to really try and get your kids to open up, to learn how to talk, how to be confident, how to really establish themselves in their space and then with their friends and then how to reach out. And if the parents don't reach out to the kids, the kids are going to have a harder time reaching out to other people when they're out on their own. The other sad part about that age group is that's when a lot of the mental health problems kind of kick in. If you see a lot of statistics on major mental health illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or those kind of issues, even with depression, anxiety, social phobia, social anxiety, by the time they reach that college age, 2021, if they're genetically predisposed to that due to their family history, then that's when they're going to have more problems. So, you know, that's another whammy that may be creating more problems for that age group. I mean, it all sounds like it kind of compiles on top of each other to make the issue worse. Like there is an economic standard that just says like, okay, it's much harder to be out on your own. And then there's a technology above that that says like, we don't sit down and have deep conversations or you know, some of the friends you're making or the connections you're making aren't necessarily real connections. Because I know I've seen that a lot working in the creator space. People talk a lot about parasocial relationships where they're like, yes, we have more creators and more content these days. And people spend a lot more time consuming it, but it makes them feel close to these creators that they don't necessarily have a real relationship with. And that's very hard. And then just like our society as a whole is very quick to the punch. And so when you're like, how are you? Good. Like that's a casual conversation walking by each other, but saying good is not like a real response. It's the polite thing to say. It's not actually how you feel. That's exactly right. I think you summed it up so well. And that's why, you know, when we talk about face-to-face connection, I love the saying, and I try and send it out everywhere I can. But it's a saying by Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who's the CNN medical analyst for, um, you know, he's he's also a neurosurgeon. But he always says saying a hello to a stranger and smiling is like CPR to the brain. And that is so, so, I think, poignant in this day and age that people don't stop to say hello. They don't stop to smile. They don't stop to really hear how the other person is doing and um you know when i ask somebody how are they doing and they say i'm fine uh in in psychiatry (laughs) we used to say fine fine just means effed up (laughs) insecure neurotic and empty (laughs) so don't don't tell me you're fine (laughs) yeah i was just talking with um a german immigrant and they had said there's a huge cultural difference between like when we ask how someone's doing when they ask it because they're like in germany if you ask how are you doing that's a full stop like it's time you're asking to have a conversation with me about it 
and right. not just like it's not something you say as you walk past people. Right. And I think I think that's also the the culture of this really short, short attention span. And I think we, especially with the social media, you know, when they talk about grabbing the headline, just looking at looking for hooks, you know, what is it that's going to grab somebody's headline? And if, even when reading news, I mean, you look at the headlines and if it interests you, you're going to read more or you're just going to move on to the next thing, even though whatever they've written about is very, very, you know, it's something that would really interest you. But until unless you kind of grab that person's attention, you are not going to get, like you said, your full attention or you're not going to get their time to really look into that issue. And that is that has contributed so much to the loneliness, I think. Uh, you know, you like you summed it up really well as far as a lot of the problems that these people have and what kind of, um, you know, things they have to surmount to be successful. And when they don't have the skills to do that or if their parents are holding back. And and these are things that people don't really read about. That's what's so sad is, is like they said, you know, even people like me who put out nonfiction books, it was very um, disparaging to read that most people only read like maybe the first one or two chapters. They don't even read the whole book. And that is why in my book, I, I made it a point to really lay out the different chapters with the different topics. And so if they were only interested in two or three things, maybe they could just home in on just those chapters. They don't have to read the whole book. But People, like they say, they don't read as much. Uh, people want to listen to podcasts. People want to basically look at headlines. They want to move on from one thing to the other. They want to stream, you know, streaming and um, watching TV shows and not understanding what is realistic because that's that's another whole slew of things that has come about that people think they have to be just that handsome as you know the actors are or they have to be just as thin as those models are or you know they have a hard time accepting themselves and when people are dealing with already having some anxiety or having difficulty reaching out it's going to be that much harder because then they're comparing themselves as to what they're seeing on TV, what they're seeing on social media, what they're seeing on the ads. And majority of us are not going to be that pretty. We are not going to be that handsome. We don't have that beautiful hair. We don't have, you know, the the money to buy all those rich clothes. And that's where the confidence level really comes into play is, are you confident in yourself? You know, People don't only look at looks for relationships. They also look for wittiness and does that person make you laugh? Does that person, is, is that person compatible with you? Is that something that, um, uh, what do you want to foster in the relationship? That's And that's where role modeling comes up so important. That's where the parenting, the other part of parenting is the role modeling. You know, what kind of relationships are you mentoring for your children how are you dealing with your neighbors how are you dealing with your friends how are you dealing how are the mom and dad relating to each other and even even if the parents are divorced that doesn't mean that they can't be civil to each other and to me it is always amazing how much anger and frustration people have towards somebody that they loved so much <laughs> before the breakup 
And so was it true love or was it just an attachment? So, you know, lots of things for kids to learn. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, and when we talk about having trouble connecting, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, trying to make friends and expand your social circle, like, number one, it's not even unique to our area. Like, this is a global thing that's becoming worse, and it bleeds into relationships where people are like, well, I can't make friends. How am I going to find, you know, my perfect partner kind of a situation? You are so right. That was one of the things that uh, really uh, interested me was um, when I was writing my book. And it, it's not only, like you said, it's not only in the United States, it's all over Europe. Netherlands has been really concerned about the loneliness issue. And it's really um, almost 30% of people all over the United States, all over Canada, all over Europe, that are having trouble connecting and meeting somebody. And why almost a third of people who we thought should be in a relationship or attached to somebody is not, they're single. And what are the reasons for why they're single? You know, in it's even worse in the Asian countries, Japanese people, uh, Chinese people. And China itself created problems for themselves by the infant side of females. And so now they have a surplus of men. It's the same thing that happens in India. You know, they, they look down on having female babies. So many of the females got killed in India and China. And so now you have a surplus of men. So what happens? You know, they can't have relationships with the opposite sex because it's just not enough women. The same issue happens with, uh, like in Netherlands, they highlighted that teenagers are dating less and having less sex. Is the issue of having less sex, the parents are happy, the teachers may be happy, but what it does is it stops them from having those relationships that actually build on trying to have better relationships, understanding the obstacles, understanding what you do when you have a heartbreak and why putting yourself out to have another relationship, which may lead to marriage and children. And so when people are so reluctant to really even go into this, this is why with loneliness and having trouble finding uh, the right person, it, it just builds on each other because then you have problem with not only your self-esteem, but then, you know, people who are lonely don't take care of themselves. That's what happened during the pandemic. You know, I had college professors tell me that when they were doing Zoom uh, meetings, that the kids would show up in their pajamas or they would be eating pizza or, you know, they didn't really care if they're taking a shower or whatever. So what happens is your, your self-care also diminishes and you're not always getting ready to get out and work and look right and present yourself in a proper way so what happens you know who's going to be attracted to somebody who's not taking care of their physical self the other thing is also then you start having more substance abuse you start having more alcohol use because you're lonely you have more drug use all of those things kind of spiral with the mental health issues. And then you have more anxiety, more depression, more dysfunction, more not taking care of yourself. <laughs> all of who's wanting a relationship with somebody who has all those issues. And not only that, but then you start having physical disabilities. You have a high blood pressure, you have obesity, 
you have um, a whole slew of physical illnesses that come about Alzheimer's for older people. You know, we haven't talked about the older people with loneliness, that when somebody loses a spouse or they lose their best friend, you know, the what's so sad is that they were, you're, you're going to be blown away by this statistic if you haven't heard about it, but 50,000 people committed suicide in 2023, almost 50,000. And a lot of them were between like 30 and 44, but the highest number was in the older age group because the older age group gets so lonely, especially if they lose a spouse or they have decreased hearing and, you know, our insurance companies and all their wisdom will not pay for hearing aids or they will not pay for eyeglasses. You know, they will look for other visual problems, but hey, you know, let, let the old people get blind and deaf, but, you know, let's not pay for healthcare uh, for that issues. And those are the two paramount things that you need. And so that's why they wonder why we have such a rise in Alzheimer's, you know, loneliness, hearing loss, and vision loss, or any kind of physical disabilities, you know, all that is definitely going to, you know, add towards people getting Alzheimer's. So this is kind of getting away from the kids and the college kids. But at the same time, you know, we have to look at the other spectrum as to where the loneliness is and how it's impacting them. Yeah. It's not one of those that just you stop being lonely when you hit a certain age. Like you can be lonely at any age, at all at ages. Any age. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, the other thing about life also is that, you know, it's not what you have in life, it's who you have in life. And there are a lot of people that are lonely, even though they're surrounded by people. And then there are people who have no people. And that is why they are lonely, and they don't know how to reach out. So there's kind of two sets of, you know, areas to look at, with, especially with loneliness. When you had talked about you know, people getting kind of a late start on things and these late starts really compile. Like if you're not dating young, you're not, you know, getting serious young, you're not getting all this practice. Like those things become less tolerable as you get older. Like having a bad date when you're a freshman in high school is forgivable. Like everybody has bad dates. They're all terrible. No one knows what we're doing. Having a really bad date be your first date when you're 21 like is way harder the escalation of how late you start doing things starts really piling up and that was one of those things you had talked about in your book is like japan has classes for people that have been entirely single and have no experience with the opposite sex until their mid-20s absolutely that was just fascinating and uh, <laughs> You know, the other, if I can mention this on your show, the other fascinating thing is that they're not having sex. They would rather jerk off or whatever, and they they think it's 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 the clean way. It, it's less messy. They don't have to deal with the relationship issues. But hey, Japan is one of the biggest countries that's having a labor shortage because they don't have kids. China is along the same line that they're not doing that because once they had the one kid and the parents decided that it was easier to focus on the one child than having multiple children, even after they were given permission to have more than one, they're all basically having that one child. So what happens when they have the one child? He gets spoiled to death. 
And then the women are the ones that are in the, they're the ones who are dictating what kind of men they want. You talk about a late start in life. That's exactly, I, I feel so bad for the younger generation now because the Wall Street has come in and they bought all these homes and houses and, you know, it has jacked up the prices for not only buying and they have taken away the American dream of owning your own home. And you're right that that has caused a lot of the millennials to go back and live with their parents. So what does that do? That's a whole slew of problems because the parents who thought they had their kids out of the home and they could retire and they could travel, well, sorry, the adult kids are back in the home. They have, you know, the mothers are still having to cater to them. So are these kids really learning about how to budget a home, how to save, how to buy the groceries, how to do all the different things? They are having trouble buying their own home. Who wants to also date somebody who's living with your parents? I know of several people who are of Indian origin like I am where it was unheard of when I was growing up, but if you weren't married by the time you were 25, or even when I was going through my training, if you didn't have your first child by the time you were 25, in the chart, literally, we wrote as geriatric primigravida. <laughs> I mean, 25. And now we cannot even have women wanting to have kids by the time they're 30 or 35. And so everything is starting late. And another interesting fact that I came across was now that the women are so focused on their career and moving up that they do not want to have children, even if the men want to have children. So now you're running into relationship problems where they're older, they both have been focused on their careers all the time. They've been more focused on trying to get financial stability to try and move out on their own. And the only good thing that's come out of it is that the divorce rate is lower because those people who are getting hitched a little later in life tend to stay long together a little longer. While if you get together with somebody when you're much younger, then you kind of grow apart and then you have your own different agendas as to who is more productive, who is not. You've got more time to you know, battle and deal with. And what what are the two main issues that cause divorces is finances, children, and affairs. And so literally, you have more time for that when you're younger. But when you're older, hopefully, like you say, when you're in that relationship, you want to be a little bit more committed. You want to, you know, stay together. But yeah, you like you said, everything is being put off till an older age, and that is definitely going to cause a problem if you want children and you want to have the energy to raise those children and take care of themselves. Well, and we start seeing, you know, like you said, the average age people are getting married is going up. Yeah. The rate of divorce is coming down, which is good, but also the rate of marriage is going down. So like much fewer people are getting married. Well, one of the things that I am a big advocate, and I was married at one time, and I was one of those people that I was with my high school friend and married him. Uh, and so I knew him from the age of 16. And so we split up 
once we both got into practice and we were both physicians and he was very busy and I was very busy and then I couldn't have children. And he's, we had always talked about wanting children. But the whole idea of second marriages, that, that's the other thing. When you have children, you bring into the baggage of that. And that's another reason why older people have a harder time wanting to get married because if they've been through a bad marriage, if they're dealing with their ex-spouses, if they're dealing with their children, you know, their new partner may not want to be part of that baggage. And so that makes it a little bit more difficult. But one of the things that I was getting to was with, with such a high divorce rate, I am so amazed that so many people still get married because what do you hear a lot of the times that, oh, my God, you know, the woman got everything, the man was left holding the bag, or the man found a younger woman and ran off, and so the woman was so angry, and so, you know, she just really made it difficult. And that's what I was saying at the beginning of our talk, is how do you go from loving somebody to absolutely hating somebody? And was that love in the first place? But my thing is, why are people getting married? I mean, you know, if you want to be with somebody, I've been in a committed relationship for over 35 years now, and we've never seen a reason to get married. You know, uh, we have our living wills. You take care of each other. You want to make sure that if I was to drop dead tomorrow, hope not, <laughs> but that, you know, he would be taken care of. And if the children can certainly have the father's name and everything, but, you know, the the lawyers are the ones that make so much money. So much money is is lost in trying to get the divorce or se separation or whatever. And so that's one of the things I really, I'm, I'm, I'm not so concerned about the less marriages. The thing that concerns me is the commitments and the relationships. And that's what I want people to focus on is having a decent relationship. You know, please be cognizant of, who is important in your life? And, and and do you care more about that other person than what you need from that other person? You know, are you going to continue to love them through all the good and the bad? And even if you're not together, shouldn't you continue to love them if that's what got you together in the first place? And that's certainly, you know, I think as society has evolved, we see marriage as less necessary. We're like, well, we don't have to have this just to be together. You know, there's no reason we have to have this. And there's, I've heard a lot of people list like there's very few benefits. And if it goes wrong, there's a huge amount of downsides. Like divorce is messy. A lot of people that would otherwise have a pretty amicable breakup suddenly have very messy divorces. And they, that makes them hate this other person so much more than is necessary. That's exactly right. And that's, uh, and it's not only in the US that the marriage rate is going down. What was really interesting to me was in a very conservative society like India, the middle class is coming up. The females are getting more educated and they are not wanting to get married, <laughs> which is really interesting <laughs> because you would think that in the Western countries and being exposed to a lot of, uh, you know, career building and, uh, you know, making your own money and being out on your own and being able to date and do whatever. Like I said, there are two things. One, you have to look at whether, you know, you're just hooking up just to have sex and 
then go home. Like a lot of the millennials, you know, we talk, they're talking about the swipe culture where, you know, instead of uh, nights, one night stands, they're having half night stands because they can have sex and then they get dressed and go home because in the mornings they look at their emails, they look at their, you know, messages, they, they're at home, they get dressed and they can go to work. And, you know, they, they, the awkwardness of saying goodbye in the morning is not there. And so they have been able to compartmentalize the love and the sex and whatever. But it also tends to leave you kind of lonely because you don't, you never, you know, there are three stages of love and relationships. You have to have the lust, which really kind of attracts you to have sex with that person. And then you have to have the attraction where you kind of fall in love and you're really looking at the other person through rosy colored eyes and you don't see their flaws. You don't pay attention to the red flags. You always just look at what's good. And then you have the attachment, which really kind of fosters you wanting to be together where you want to really be with that person, have children, build a family. And what the first one does with the swipe culture is it just kind of leaves you, you know, maybe satisfied for a few minutes while you're having the sex, but then you're missing out on a lot of the other things that really kind of propel you into having more healthy relationships. Well, and it seems like casual dating or casual relationships, you know, people that won't even call it dating, that seems way more common now than depicted in the past. Is that kind of accurate? Oh, very accurate. I think that most people are just, like you say, uh, it's not, uh, it, it, it's a funny saying, it's not falling in love or not being attracted. It's just to have an attachment to somebody who entertains you for a little while. And that's it. It's not really wanting. And and again, when you look at a lot of the streaming shows and when they depict a lot of the younger people, isn't that what you see on, uh, you know, a lot of the shows is that it's just, you know, you just go from one to the other. This this guy was great. You know, you, you go home, you, you have sex, and then, you know, the next morning you're gone. And is this what we are modeling on? I mean... And, and maybe what's also happening is that the past generations had such high divorce rates that, you know, the children are like, you know, they saw their parents fighting or, the, or, or breaking up. And especially if they're ugly divorces, you know, is this what marriage is about? Is this what relationships are about? And that is why I always say that mentoring by parents is so important, even if you're not in a good relationship, even if you're, that doesn't mean you can't teach your kids what is good and what is right and what is healthy and what they should strive for. Because without getting that guidance, like you say, you know, what they're doing is what they're seeing on TV or what they're hearing, you know, with, uh, with people arguing and whatever. And they think that's the norm. And that shouldn't be the norm. And that's where we need to change the ideas in society of what it should be. Well, it's interesting to look at. Is there some kind of like fundamental misunderstanding or a lack of information, something that like men aren't realizing about women or women aren't realizing about men that's causing such, you know, a constant divide between us? One of the things that I mentioned in my books is that we're really kind of losing the male identity and the female identity. And I think the men are being demasculinized by very strong women. 
and the women are not learning how to sew and cook and, you know, just being a female. And I think that there is so much pressure being put on women to be career-oriented, to be successful, to keep climbing the corporate ladder. And you don't have to do that to feel good about yourself. And that that's where I think the confidence matters so much. And it's the same thing with the men, that they don't have to feel like they're being demasculinized if they get together with somebody who's a little smarter than them or who owns more than them. Because there are lots of advantages to dating a smart woman. Now, come on, you know, she's going to be more adventurous. She's going to bring more money into the home. She's going to, you know, not put up with, uh, you know, your sloppy ways. She's going to expect you to do it. And one of the things I always say is, you know, be in a relationship with somebody who's going to make you a better person. And don't always put all your eggs in one basket. You know, the one person doesn't have to be your everything. There has to be a little leeway for the man to do his thing and enjoy his activities with his friends while the woman can go out with her friends and do what she wants to do. And that both of them don't have to compete all together all the time. The other thing is that in the past, there was like with my parents, my father was always the the person that went out and worked and earned money and did all the bills. And my mother raised us and she did all the housekeeping and the cooking. And my mom always used to laugh that my dad never made her a cup of tea. And I always remind my mom that, mom, you never opened a bill. <laughs> so, you know, there was, <laughs> you know, dad, dad had his jobs and you had your jobs. Now everything is mixed up. You know, now I'm, since there are there, you know, you always have to have a son that's taking care of the parents. Well, we were three girls and I'm the youngest, but I take care of my mom's bills and I take care of finances and everything else. So a lot of the roles have been blended. But what I tell the couples is that it needs to be 50-50 or sometimes it's 10-90. But you have to work together. You have to accept each other, you know, be respectful of each other you know, show gratitude to each other. When you say what works in relationships, learn to talk. Even when you're fighting, learn to laugh because laughter is so important and humor breaks down so many barriers when bad things happen. And those are my little nuggets for why, even though there's so many things changing in life, people can certainly still connect and if they do the right things, they can have really positive relationships. Well, and I think that's, you know, there's some interesting pieces in there. Like, number one, don't be afraid to be, you know, a little bit of a trope where you're like, yes, I'm a lady and I know how to cook crazy. I know moving on. And the same thing, like right. putting 50-50 into a relationship is assuming that you're not going to have any great days and they're not going to have any bad days. Right. Because sometimes, you know, when you're with a partner for a long time, one of you is going to have a very bad day and the other person has to pick up slack. Like that's just how, you know, being together with someone works. But on those days where it's like, I'm having a bad day, you're having a bad day and being together is not going to help the situation. Like, don't be afraid to separate because if you guys can't reach a hundred percent together, like you should find a way to reach a hundred percent by, 
you know, being with your friends or doing things you enjoy that doesn't necessarily have to include another person. That is exactly right, Colton. That's very well said. Because like you said, you know, we all have bad days and we all have where we don't watch what comes out of our mouth. <laughs> and and you're always going to hurt the person you love the most. <laughs> but don't be afraid to say sorry. You know, my biggest thing is when I'm upset with my other half, my first thing is say sorry. And as soon as they say sorry, we both start laughing because men have a little bit harder time saying sorry than women do in general. And so he'll he'll kind of drag it. So, 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 so. And I'm like, just, just say it and let's get past it and then let's laugh about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you but like you're it. right that, you know, people really do need to uh, accept that there are times when you can't fix it for the other person. You know, there have to be some other outsiders. And, and that's not making the other person any less worthy. It's just that, like you said, they have to do their own introspection. They have to get an idea from somebody else. What's going to move move them past whatever's ailing them? And then as you get older, you know, physical problems. Oh, my God. You know, I see so many couples that are struggling with so many health issues and the other person has to step up and do so much more. But at the same time, when you care and love enough, you want to be with the other person. You care whether the other person is happy and you want to do more for that other person. Then that's what love is. It's not just that you need them to. And I, and I think that's where the shortfall right now is that what are you doing for me? No, honey, it's what are you doing for the relationship? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those like, you know, a lot of people will look at relationships where one of them has had a very serious health issue, whether they're in an accident or they had, you know, a, a disease of some sort arise. And they're like, wow, I don't know if I could stay and take care of someone. And you're like, that's what you're looking for, though is a person that you would stay with even if that were the case because those people like make each other you know happier and better every day and they choose to stay there because they're still despite what you see on the outside like reaping benefits from the other person and and like you said there's so many things you can do together it, it's not just going out you know the other thing is if you take care of your own physical health and you take care of your own mental health, then you're going to be able to contribute so much more to the relationship when instead of just don't always ask for somebody else to do the fix. Sometimes you have to fix yourself. And it is a lot of work doing you know, physical exercises every day or showing gratitude instead of criticism every day. You, you have to remind yourself every day what is healthy and what is good and if you stop yourself for just a minute to remind yourself that is this helpful or is this hurtful just for that one minute and like i said all of us say a lot of things that are going to be spiteful and angry and and, and that's human nature but you've got to also be able to step back and say hey you know i was out of line yeah, certainly that that ability to step back and like you said say sorry. Do you think men in particular because I think this is a common complaint like we don't have access to the full range of emotions or we're afraid to show them. Do you think that's true? I 
don't think that you don't have a full range of emotions because it's funny. I've, I've got, <laughs> like I said, I've got my partner and then I have another male friend. And when we're watching movies, the two of them are crying and I'm the one that's not crying. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always laugh at them. I said, here are my two crybabies. You want your tissues? <laughs> So I think the older the men get, the more emotional they do get, and they they are able to express themselves a little bit better. But you're right that, you know, boys have been brought up from a very young age saying, don't show emotions, you know, don't cry. Uh, If you get hurt, you know, just shake it off, Uh, be a man. And I think that that's changing a little bit now because I think men are able to express themselves. But one of the things that I advocate is that men need to be more outspoken. They need to tell their partners what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And I think that's where a lot of the problems, even after 35 years, a lot of times I have to say to my partner, you know, I can't read your mind. You have to tell me what's going on. You know, why are you quiet? Or why are you not addressing this issue? Or what's going on? And men are somewhat reluctant. Women, yeah, we tend to be much more vulnerable and we tend to, you know, say probably a lot more than what men want to hear. Like I said in my books, that men probably think, oh, she doesn't need to say this anymore. But at the same time, I think if men learn that it's okay, and, and women appreciate that. Women really appreciate you're being more open and, and saying what's on your mind. And I don't know whether men are a little bit more scared that if women really do hear what they're feeling and thinking that they're going to shy away or they're going to. um, And the closest relationship I have is with somebody who has shared most of his life with me, which he was never able to because of the kind of jobs he did. But we have a really close relationship because he was able to share. He was able to talk. And and depending on what the relationship is, most women are going to accept your flaws and they are going to accept that you're just human and you do feel this way. But I think men have been and boys have been given the wrong message growing up. And I think that I'm hoping that that's going to change over time. And hopefully that if men are more willing to read and understand and accept that they will be accepted. And and that comes again from your self-confidence. That's why I really feel like confidence is such a big issue that if you do, not only does it open doors with your careers, but also definitely with your relationships. I think it's one of those that I see, you know, my female friends and they have so many friends and I'm like, you know, I look at my male counterparts and we only have a couple very close friendships, but we're like, you know, male bonding is very close together. And I think that's because it's the only time that we feel like, oh, I can share with this person because I've known this guy forever. And he understands we're not supposed to be talking about this kind of stuff, but I'm going to be, I'm going to break down a little bit and get a little emotional with him. And then that like bonds us together. It seems like we're missing out on that by not, not feeling like we can do that with everyone. You know, we're like, I can only do this with the one guy friend that I have that I trust the most in the world. Otherwise, you know, this this feeling I have isn't going to be accepted. Let, let me correct you one one thing. When you say your, your, your girlfriends have a lot of friends, I think they have a lot of acquaintances. 
And so when you talk about, I always say, if you have five friends that you feel close to in your lifetime, and those are the real close friends, then you've done well in life. So females, it's easier to build acquaintances and they have their little cliques and whoever's in their groups or whatever. But to it's like you said, you know, males have two or three friends that they're very, very attached to and they can share everything and show emotions. If if you if you're really sincere with girlfriend, it's gonna be the same that it, it's gonna be very few people that you're really, really close to who you can share your deepest emotional sentiments with and who will comfort you when you need that comfort. You, you're not going to get that comfort from a whole range of people. Do you think that's the right kind of number? Like, should we be aiming for five and not expecting more? Or is there like a wall that we need to bring down on both sides that just says like, men, you got to be more emotional. Women, you have to do, you know, X thing so that we can all get like closer friendships. Or is it like, you should only have this many because anything beyond that, you're going to feel overexposed. No, no. I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's always very difficult to share with a lot of friends. I mean, even as verbal as I am and as, you know, I, I, I feel like I can, I can talk about my life with most people. But at the same time, I, I have, you know, four or five friends that I share most things with. I, I, there's no there's no set quota that that you should have or not have. It's who you feel connected to, and uh, do they have kind of similar ideas like you do? I mean, what 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 builds a strong relationship if if the person kind of thinks similar to you, if they feel that that, that you can open up to them and you'll be accepted, you're not going to be judged because but people are always uh, shameful. And they feel judged. And that's what causes a lot of loneliness too, because they, they think that if they open up and if the if that other person is gonna look down on them, then they're not going to uh, you know, be more ready to open up. But no, I I don't think that there has to be a set limit. It it all depends on you. And and literally, Colton, I mean, how much time does it take? It takes a lot of effort to have a really close relationship. And how many of us in life have that kind of time to build those really close relationships? I mean, at certain times in your life, and that's why going through different lifespans is interesting because during the different lifespans, you have different friends you connect with. All the friends that I used to have in medical school, you know, I only have my ex-husband and another friend from there that I'm really close to. Uh, when I got with my partner, you know, he's he's my best friend now. Then when we came to Cape Canaveral, I made another three or four friends that I'm really close to that I can share things with. So during different lifespans, you go through different set of friends. So when I collect all of them through my lifespan, I may have, you know, more than five. But at any one time, I only have you know, three or four that I spend a lot of time with and connect with. And it's one of those, you know, like there's a lot of work to be done on ourselves, right? We've got to grow as people and be kind of accepting of ourselves before we get into relationships. Because if you're not sure of who you are and you're not sure who the other person is, like who is the relationship for? Exactly right. You're exactly right. That is why 
like I said, confidence is just the number one thing. I mean, you just have to be sure. I I was a very shy girl when I grew up. It's not it's not something that that you grow up with. It's something that your experiences in life teach you. The feedback that you get from others that teaches you. Also, do you feel good about what you do? Are you making the right decisions? You know, are you associating with the right persons? And that is why with what's happening politically right now, I, I get really upset with what kind of role models are of a politician setting for the American public. You know, they don't want to work together. They want to show anger. You know, they call people names. Is this the kind of society we want to be in? It wasn't like this 40 years ago when I came to America. Everybody loved wanting to come to America. You know, you could work hard, you could get somewhere, uh, but you work together. You work with in, within your communities. You reach across the aisle. And that is why I've said it uh, in my mini movie that many voices at one time on social media can make a difference. You know, that's where we need to use social media for the good. But being confident in yourself and knowing what's the right thing. If you get horrified at seeing somebody uh, berate somebody else or calling somebody names, then you know that's not the kind of person you want to be. Then why would you support that person? You know, those are the things that make you do the right things in life and get associated with the right kind of people. Yeah. And there's a fantastic quote in your first book that I really like. I latched onto and I thought this is great because it's used in the connotation of a relationship. I believe at least it is, you know, in the section it's in, but it applies to everything. Like if you're looking for, you know, a role model on the street, or if you're looking at your politicians, or if you're looking at your relationships, the quote was everyone's trying to find the right person, but nobody is trying to be the right person. The right person. Absolutely. Yes. I'm like, That's such a great <laughs> quote. It's I I I had so much fun finding just the right quotes to uh, put in my book and uh, yeah that that was one of my favorites because it's true people are always looking for other people to fix problems they are not fixing their own problems and they are not uh, looking at uh, I want to I want to end with another quote that I came across because when you wanted to end with love and relationships. If I, if, if I can just do this for one minute. And it says, some people may be brokenhearted, not because they have been hurt, but because they never found someone who mattered enough to hurt them. And that is, you have to put yourself out. Love is the master key that opens the world to, to happiness. And so many people miss out on that because they're just not sure of themselves. They don't. And also, you know, most of the psychologists and mental health people will tell you that if you don't take advantage of the opportunities you have, you will always have regrets for what you did not pursue. It's okay. Things are not always going to work out, but you have to take advantage of the opportunities. If you don't, then you're never going to get where you need to. Certainly. Well, I think that is, you know, an excellent thought for us to leave people with to really, you know, go back, listen through this and try and take, you know, bits and pieces and apply them to your daily life because everything in here has been so critical to forming, you know, as a, a functional adult that is well rounded that 
is happy being who they want to be. And I appreciate that you have, you know, given us the opportunity to learn some of that. Well, thank you, Colton. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom at such a young age. I think that uh, you're doing such a great thing. And I hope that, like you said, people will listen and they have access to my books on Amazon. Um, you know, they can certainly get a lot of good information for a way forward if they want it. Yeah, definitely. Make sure to tell people where they can find more from you if they're looking for more. Um, I have a website that uh, is very easy to find, www.drsheila, but Sheila is spelled S-H-I-L-A, Patel. Patel is a very common last name, P-A-T-E-L, so just drsheilapatel.com. And if you just go on Amazon uh, Books and look for books by Dr. Sheila Patel, all of them will show up. Fantastic. I will put the link to that website in the show notes. So if anybody is looking for a quick link to that, it'll be right there. And if you pick up these books on Amazon, make sure you leave good reviews so that other people know how to find them. Because if books don't get reviews, they kind of just get lost in the algorithm. And that's why I... You won't believe it. I have sent out so many emails asking people to do reviews and people are just so reluctant to leave them. And I just say, please, I need those for it. It's one thing writing books, but that that is why I'm getting on the podcast like yours that I want to teach people. You know, it's not authors don't make money from writing books, uh, but my passion is to put out the right information. Absolutely. Well, Sheila, thank you again so much for being here. I have appreciated your time immensely. Okay, goodbye and have a great rest of the day, Colton. Thank you again. I know it's a deeply uncomfortable premise for whatever reason, but I think the best thing you can do after hearing this episode is just call any of your friends that maybe you haven't spoken to in a little while. It doesn't have to be a long-lost friend or anything. I called one of my best friends in the world, just because it was nice to hear his voice instead of only texting him. The February rankings, as we reach the end of this short month, are looking pretty close. Number one, the United States, led by New York, California, and Oregon, with a number of others very close behind. Number two, Canada, with Quebec just barely leading over British Columbia. Number three, Australia, still led by New South Wales. Number four, England of the United Kingdom. Number five, New Zealand, getting bumped down but still hanging in there. That's it for this week. Have a great week, a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here next week for another new episode. Until that new episode, please do all those things that help the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, subscribing or just telling a friend about it. Word of mouth is an incredibly powerful marketing tool for all of us that rely on it. Remember, you can reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. Most importantly, stay dumb.